What interests me equally or more is how music can be a force in, in life, in our lives, for change, to change hearts and minds, to change, um, to motivate, to bring joy. To, to There are people that I know who only get out of bed because there's music in that day ahead of them. And that makes me think, wow, this is, what we are tapping into here is something extremely special. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. My name is Joe McHugh. Back in 1977, when I was a young man, I traveled to Scotland to visit friends. One evening, while visiting the city of Inverness, I happened into a rehearsal of the Highland Strathspey and Real Society, where I met the director, Donald Riddle. Mr. Riddle was a master fiddler, as well as a respected violin maker, and we struck up a friendship. And I wound up staying in Scotland for a year, paying Mr. Riddle for my fiddle lessons by working on his farm what the Scots call a croft. It was, to say the least, a transformative experience. Well, fast forward a decade, and soon after moving to Nevada City, California, in the foothills of the Sierras, I learned that another renowned Scottish fiddler was my neighbor. That fiddler was Alistair Fraser. And when I began to work on the Rosin the Bow project, I asked Alistair if I might interview him about his love of Scottish traditional music and his relationship with the violin. This is part one of that interview. For me, um, I think the most important thing is, is, is where the sharp end of my life and where it meets the instrument. And yeah, we could talk about tunes and all the, the origins of the tunes, but um, the fiddle, it, it is full of, it, it leads to this great well of, of stories. But it's also an incredible uh, um, tool for expression for expressing the soul and for journeying. And I think that's where I I kind of meet it head on in, in my life. And I always um, begin by, by saying that I was extremely introverted and shy as a kid. And I still basically am. I know where all the scaffolding is that takes me to where I am now, where I, you know, I'm out there proselytizing and telling stories and, and doing all kinds of stuff. And people find it hard to believe that I actually had trouble speaking in public, but that's the, the truth of it. And, and I, uh, I was eight years old when I started my fiddle, and I was so chronically shy that I would hide in the in the bicycle shed at school with my face in the corner, and my mother would come to school and she would extract me, you know, and turn me around and set me off and. So I, I I was dealing with it, and I, the reason I, I go there is I think I think that a lot of what I do and what I'm about and my relationship with the fiddle emanates from the strength of uh, the strength that I was given by finding a fiddle in my hand, um, and the reason I had a fiddle in my hand is because my grandfather played. Tell us where this is and what year you're born. Just put us in um, the picture. Well, I was born in 1955. Uh, my, we're Frasers, as, as you mentioned there. 
Fraser's of Lovett. So we actually, the croft in our family is in Kilburnie, which is Kiltarlity. And my grandfather was the gardener for Lord Lovett, who worked on the Lovett estate. Is that Bewley Castle? Uh, Beaufort Castle. Beaufort Castle. Yeah, so, but he moved, he moved around, but that was one of his jobs. And we have the croft in the family still is still there. I visited recently. Um, so he he uh, he played the fiddle a wee bit. He played the pipes, and there was music in my family. Uh, and his his name was your grandfather. Was, my grandfather was John John Fraser, and uh, his only son was Robert, my my dad. And Rob played the pipes and. Uh, very Highland family, very soft-spoken. Um, so there, were, there we had this fiddle in in my home where I was growing up in Clackmannan, which is in central Scotland. So uh, because he was a gardener, he moved around to different estates and, and whatnot. And, and so I, uh, my dad got a job as an engineer in Alloa near Stirling which is the home of Stilling Castle and Wallace's Monument and all those landmarks. And so that's where I grew up. And my mother was from more of a Glasgow area. And she she loved to sing around the house. She'd always, she'd never say she was a musician, but she was actually a fine musician. She didn't play an instrument. And she loved to sing and my dad played the pipes and so eight-year-old Alistair gets the opportunity to to learn violin because there's a this amazing new uh, idea or a new opportunity that a fiddle teacher, a violin teacher called Willie Fernie moved to our county and he was taking, he had room for three students at the local primary school. And uh, I, I always thank my parents for pursuing this, you know, they they thought it would be a good idea if I signed up for violin lessons because my granddad's fiddle was under the sideboard, not doing anything, you know, just sitting there. We got this violin, we may as well use it. And um, so I, um, I, I, I passed the ear test. They, they did a little ear test where they... Um, they had you tune one string to the same pitch as another string, and I remember the, the test. And so that was that was the beginning of, of my journey, and I I studied a lot of classical music with Willie Fernie in school, and then I'd come home, and my my dad would um, play out pipe tunes, Scottish pipe tunes on on the piano or on his chanter in the kitchen, and I'd be learning. Scottish tunes, and my mother's singing Scottish songs at home, so I'd, I'd be learning traditional Scottish music at home, and then doing my, my Mozart and my Beethoven and my etudes at school. So I had this very um, kind of two-sided look at the instrument, uh, which uh, has been a constant uh, source of fascination to me to to think about the classical path, the paper learning path versus the ear learning path. And um, I think because of my shyness and the fiddle actually became a voice for me. It became 
something that I could kind of lean on, you know, and I could, I kind of knew what to do in, in, in company or in public. I would play my, I'd hide behind my fiddle. If I went to a social occasion, I would, I'd be up on the dance stage, either playing or just sitting there with the, with the old guys, soaking it up. It's a much safer place for me to be. And then I'd eventually start, start playing. Um, the songs your mother sang, did she sing any in Gaelic? No, but we had a lot of Gaelic around. My dad uh, was closer to Gaelic. My grandfather was a fluent Gaelic speaker. And a lot of what I have to say actually takes me down the path of conf- confronting injustice. You know, when I think about the going from my shy wee Scottish boy place to my uh, raising up, asking questions about society, about politics, about uh, the arts, the role of the arts in our lives. Often, uh, you know, I'm I'm accused of having a missionary zeal for what I do, <laughs> and it's not true. the only Scott <laughs> to be accused of that. Yeah, and <laughs> and I and, and I, I I love the music. I mean, I, I absolutely love music. I see the power of it, as I said last night in the concert. Um, but what interests me equally or more is how music can be a force in, in life, in our lives, for change, to change hearts and minds, to change, um, to motivate, to bring joy. To, to There are people that I know who only get out of bed because there's music in that day ahead of them. And that makes me think, Wow, this is what we are tapping into here is something extremely special, and the fiddle is what led me there. Holding on to that fiddle, I often talk about it being like a like a, giving a horse its head, you know, and and having the horse lead you in, into the most amazing places. I feel like that when I hold my my scroll and. Uh, it takes me down through the centuries. It takes me to the ancestors. It takes me to healing places and sacred places and and wild places. And so um, that journey to me is is such a privilege to have touched that. And and the fiddle seems to attract that kind of I don't want to say power, but it vibrates hugely in in that arena, and and you know I go to Spain and I talk. Uh, we change hearts and minds in in Spain. We we give people hope at at the fiddle camps in Spain. I go to the Basque country. Um, there's a great little story there about. Um, I love the Basque. I love the Spanish, and we're have, sitting around this big table. One of my favorite situations in Spain where. People love to sit around a table, have a good meal, and it takes six hours, you know, and then we're just yakking away and telling stories. And and I was on my my uh, topic of the of the day, which was, where is the Basque fiddle? Because they're playing accordions, they're playing various uh, other instruments, you know, they pluck things, they blow things, but where, where's the, where are the Basque fiddlers, you know, and I... Oh, we don't do that, Alistair, we don't, we just... And I'm saying, well, why, why would some cultures express themselves, you know, by scraping something across a string, and others wouldn't. 
because I'm, I'm thinking fundamentally it's a it's a great tool of expression so uh no we don't play fiddle you just got to stop asking about where are the basque fiddlers because we can't find any for you and and although there was a there were a couple of guys who said yeah i think there was a basque fiddle at one time and and then someone said around the dinner table um you know the reason we don't have violins is because they're so difficult to make it's easier just to get a horn or a, a flute and stick holes in it and and I said, well, they're not that difficult to make, you know. I mean, and so this this came up, and I said, I'm in the home of this amazing Basque artist called Juan Goriti, who is a multi-genre, he's a sculptor, he's a painter, he builds things, he's just amazing. His house is full of artwork, and we're in this house having this conversation. And I think I was just totally inspired by the environment and Juan Goriti's work. And they're saying, well, it's too difficult to make violins, and that's why we don't have them. And I said, give me an hour. <laughs> and I said, I need a couple of helpers. And on the way in, I'd noticed there's this workshop thing in the basement, you know. So off with a bottle of red wine, down to the basement, and I said, right, we're going to make a fiddle. And, you know, it was, it, the place was full of all kinds of stuff, fishing line and all, like, bits of wood and... So off we go, we just we got the saws out and we, we made a basic, basic plank, made a little bridge, uh, you know, it wasn't too hard and there was some nails and some uh, nails. Fi- fishing line <laughs> and yeah, nails. Violin makers cringing, <laughs> I love it, go ahead. And then a, 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 a nice, you know, twig from outside and put some t- twine on that. And so within an hour or two, I was back at the dinner table with this with this monstrosity that I had made, and I played, and they all danced. We we had a dance, you know, on this extremely rudimentary. Uh, so that debunked that fiddle. argument. But, but, but anyway, that's another tangent. But um, well, you know, in a way, uh, and this is getting more back into that cultural history and politics and power relations that I think you touched on. Uh, and you were saying about how you've learned or, or come to see these things maybe in a different way because of the music and its historical uh, role that it's played in, in Scottish culture, uh, these marginalized people, you know, whether it's blacks playing mm. blues on, you know, well, you know, the classic is the string from the, the screen door, the wire, you know, taking out of a screen door yeah. to replace the string on the guitar. Uh, making music with whatever you have available, but how essential that music is to create some sense of power that you you have control over, right. where you have another force telling you they're going to control you in every right. other way. And at your concert last night, you talked about that and we talked about how the uh, when the music was outlawed, people sang it to yeah. keep the tunes. And I, mm-hmm. I really, I think that that's uh, an area I'm fascinated by. Oh, me too. That's because I see it. We're in it. The reason I started my fiddle camp on Sky back in Scotland was basically I I was puzzled. You know, I was puzzled as to why my own culture didn't know its my own people didn't know their own music very well. So when I was at university in Edinburgh, I did physics at university. I was playing music all the time. I was being my binary self. I was playing 
<laughs> classical music in the orchestra, yeah. playing Karloff's Carmen Aburana, loving it. And then I'd go to Sandy Bell's pub and I'd sit there and play tunes. And I had I had this kind of multifaceted, well, opposing uh, lifestyle thing going on where I might, am I going to play this way with, with a big vibrato and, and tone or am I going to play this way with my grace notes and play fluently in Scottish? Or are you going to make a living as a physicist or engineer? Yeah, all, all of that. And, yeah. and, I, and I'm still coming out of my shell. You know, I'm very puzzled by this whole <laughs> thing. And I, I decided I was going to find out more about my own culture and try to answer this question. Why, For example, when I went into the pub in Edinburgh and I was playing pipe marches in Strathspeys, often the place would, uh, it would go silent because people were playing Irish music. And I love Irish music. But I wanted to play Scottish music. And it was at a time when there wasn't much Scottish music being played in Scottish pubs. And then I would go uh, around the old bookshops. I loved going around to antique bookshops in Edinburgh and I'd find in basements with people with fingerless gloves freezing, you know, sitting by a heater. And, and, I, and, I'd, be, and I'd, I'd be looking for old Scottish music collections, the Sky Collection, the Simon Fraser Collection. I wanted to get these old 18th century, 19th century sources and it was hard to find them. And then I found out that actually the Canadians, a lot of the Cape Bretoners, the Canadians, who had worked in Scotland in, or had been stationed there during the war, they were mad keen on Scottish film music and they had bought all these old collections. So if you go to Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, to many houses, which I have done, fiddle houses, you'll find the pianos in these houses laden with original Scottish music collections because the Canadians killed, they bought a lot of them, took them home. Mm. And uh, that's one place where they went. And another thing that happened was uh, I, the National Library in Scotland was a, was known to have a great collection of Scottish fiddle music, which you'd expect. So as a young student, still very shy, and but on a track, I want to find out what my culture is about. I went to the National Library reference desk and I said, I'm interested in the Scottish fiddle music collection you have here. And this little lady at the, at the desk, she said, well, here's, here's the list. And I was, wow, it's, everything was there, the Gows, the Marshalls, the Low collection, all, all of it, just this feast before my eyes. And I said, wow, I'd, I'd love to get the, the Gows, I'd love to, um, <laughs> all of it, all of it, can, you know. <laughs> and she said, uh, so I said, can I look at the Mar on this on this visit, can I look at the Marshalls, the Gows, and the Low Collection, let's say. And she looked at me and she said, Really? I said, Yeah. She said, That means I have to go and get the ladder. And I said, Well, that's that's what I mean. And she said, um, okay, I'll get them. But you're and you're allowed to photocopy three pages per visit. Three pages per visit. So here I have this feast of, of music and I'm sitting at the big desk with all these tunes and I want all these tunes that I want to know. And uh, it was an uphill battle, you know. Um, and another thing, at, at the University of Edinburgh, I was in, you know, doing physics, so I was science faculty. We had the School of Scottish Studies, which is a great resource and, and archive material, but I wasn't allowed into that building because I was science faculty and that, and that was arts faculty. 
So I actually befriended the custodian of the archives, who actually was a just a great little guy who did it for the love of it, and he had been a, an organist in the silent movies. And he would meet me in the evening, and I would climb in the window at the School of Scottish Studies, and we'd sit down there in the basement together, and he'd get all these reel-to-reel tapes out. And I'd listen to Hector McAndrew and Jean Carignan and all these all these people that I really wanted to hear, you know, and people that I'd never heard of. Um, and then he'd kind of slip me copies of these 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 tapes. So I took that home to my room and I, I would listen to those. But it was it was work trying to find the source material. And there, I would think now you could set me right on this. Certainly my experience with Appalachian music uh, being what it is, and then even some of the Irish music that I'm familiar with. I always saw uh, saw Scottish music, at least the music I was being introduced, Neil Gow, Scott Skinner, that sort of thing, as music that was kind of a bridge between what I would have thought is more classical music, where you do have written scores. I mean, you, you, you have the music written out versus something that was still completely in the oral tradition. So, so I, I, it's almost a bridge. And when I first heard a uh, Strasbourg and Real Society mm-hmm. walked in, it was a revelation. You could have 40 fiddlers all playing not what I would call European classical music, that repertoire, but playing these, these uh, reels and, and Strasbourg's, but playing them in a very uh, orchestral way. Yeah. It's, it's been a problem. The, the, the Scottish penchant for uh, for succumbing to writing things down. This is really a, it fascinates me that we yes we have this great body of written work. We got these old collections, and at the same time as I'm looking for these old collections, I'm thinking this actually is not really the source. That the source is to find the old guys playing, and to go to the dance. Uh, the problem with paper is that it becomes a controlling mechanism. And boy, do we suffer from that in Scotland. The, the more... Uh, uh, it's impressive that we have this documentation of a certain aspect of the tradition. Piles and piles of paper. With the paper come rules and and certain ways of bowing that are written down, and then that becomes dangerous because someone says, it's written in the book that this is the correct way to bow this. And I had to confront that. I had to confront many, many people in Scotland, teachers, who would say things like, here is the correct way. It drove me nuts. It still (laughs) drives me nuts. And we, we suffered mightily from that. Here's a short segment of Alistair's music. He is accompanied on the cello by Natalie Haas as he plays an instrumental version of the Scots anti-imperialist song, Freedom Come All Ye.
One time you mentioned to me about how when you went to Cape Breton, mm. you heard a fiddle music that was Scottish and you felt was closer to the Scottish music that was probably played in the day in Scotland before this formalizing process mm -hmm. had sort of sanded off some of the rough edges. Is that a, a fair portrayal of what you were saying about that? Or? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So following on from from where, you know... Your story, yeah. How'd you get finding out, you know, getting the source material, looking at the, the body of tunes, which is a, a great thing to have under your belt, but how are you going to play them? How, how are you going to actually move your finger on the, on the fingerboard? How, uh, these days I talk about which language do you speak on your fiddle, you know, and uh, I, I know it, my, my challenge is to be multilingual or multi-dialect. So I'll play in a Northeast style. I'll use certain ways of entering and leaving notes and spending time in them that is of the Northeast. It's Doric-influenced, where people speak like that, Fuyudain. They have jagged consonants. The, the vowels are shorter. As I head over to the West Coast, the vowels get longer. And how are you doing today, boy? Are you having a good time? And the fiddle, the vowels are longer, you know, and, and you spend more time so this, I developed this idea of fiddlespeak, and now I'm interested in following fiddlespeak basically across the planet. But it's it's a big enough, it's a satisfying job just to stay in Scotland and go to the Gaeltacht, speak Gaelic on the fiddle, go to the northeast, go to Edinburgh, allow more Baroque influences, more Italian eight ornaments. Uh, more of the big city in, uh, and then go all, all the way up to Shetland, allow your Scandinavian impulses to to come alive, uh, the ringing tree. Oh, it's so fascinating. And that's just within Scotland. And so your question was about Cape Breton. When I went to Cape Breton, I, I found that kind of fluency that I was missing at home. Tell me about the first time you got to go there. How old were you? Oh, that was an amazing trip. I uh, I actually was living, first time I went to Cape Breton, well, actually, I'll, I'll go before that. When I was still living in Scotland, I, got, I had the opportunity to go around to a concert tour of the States. I did 26 states when I was 20. It was a crazy tour. Many stories, many adventures, a lot of growing up. But I ended, I found myself in a, in a, in a music shop in Hamilton, Ontario. And that's what I would do in my time off, you know, still the same, actually. I go to music shops <laughs> or LP record shops, you know. There I was in this record shop in Hamilton, Ontario, and there was a Scottish fiddle section. I had never seen a Scottish fiddle section in a record store anywhere. And I went there, and I remember looking through all these LPs, Winston Scotty Fitzgerald, you know, all the Lee Cremo, Cape Breton, all like so many LPs, and I, wow, this was a revelation to me. You know, I bought a bunch of them, took them home. So I made a mental note that I have to check this out. What 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 is going on here? Why is it in Canada? There there are deep shelves of Scottish fiddle recordings. So that ended up uh, taking me to Cape Breton, where one day I decided. As it was my 
habit at that time. I'd, I'd, uh, when I first came here, I, I, I put a kilt on and decided to go around the Pacific. I did two months of that, and it took me to all kinds of places, which is a different story. But So I think uh, before I did that, I decided I'd put my kilt on, and I'd go to Cape Breton. I just told the, the people at work <laughs> that I, I was taking a couple of weeks off. And so I put my kilt on, and actually a, a pair of running shoes and a rucksack and a fiddle. This is a Fraser. And I know nothing this about it. This is a Fraser Tartan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't, I, all I know is that I had seen these LPs in this record shop years ago. And I made no plans other than I bought an airfare. And I showed up in Halifax Airport. People tell this story in Cape Breton. So I, I'm getting off the plane in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm standing at the baggage carousel with a kilt on, a pair of running shoes and a fiddle wearing on my rucksack. And this this older guy comes over to me and says, What you doing? How you how you doing? What's what's what brings you here, you know? And I said, Well, I'm from Scotland and I'm just uh, just want to check out the music and uh, and I'm I'm actually very interested in this this band that I heard called the, the Cape Breton Symphony. And uh, which is a band of four fiddlers. <laughs> and the person who has come over, wandered over to me at the baggage carousel is Wilfred Gillis. And Wilfred famously says, I am the Cape Breton Symphony. He's, he's in the Cape, he's one of the fiddlers. And I said, you're kidding. He said, yeah, we're all here. We're all standing around the baggage carousel asking who this character is with a kilt on and the running shoes. And, and uh, so I met them. I met Buddy McMaster, Wilfred Gillis, Sandy McIntyre, and Jerry Holland, and Bobby Brown, who was the, the leader and the pianist. He's actually a Scot. And so they're all laughing at me, you know, what's this guy like? And I said, well, I, I came here to, to track you guys down. I just love what's going on with the music here. And, and they said, oh, so you, you're, you're playing. And so the end result was that I, I went off with them, did, did their gig with them. And then I went to Cape Breton and I went to the dances and I I just fell in love with it because like I, I say now um, I'd never been to a place where you can go to the grocery store and you hear someone whistling Talach Gorham with all its variations you know that kind of fluency mm-hmm. just blew me away or I'd be at, at a at a at a Cayley a dance or a wee house party, you know, midnight, and there's a fiddler playing with the piano next to him, and he's he's putting tunes together, and and it's not a case of everyone joining in, saying, "Hey, I know that tune, let's all join." The people around the room are actually listening to the to the fiddler, and they're they're observing things like I, I remember sitting next to this woman, she said. Oh look, he's he's putting Dan Huey's Strathspey with with uh, the high order, and I haven't heard anyone do that since Mary Jesty did that in nineteen twenty three, or you know, like the medleys. There were there was there was a a, a deep knowledge and sophistication about the, the way the medleys were put together, and and, and, and deep uh, listening going on. Yeah, an oral, an entire oral, yeah, way of of relating to this music, right. And memory. 
and yeah, and the connection to the the dance to the the groove was alive. It was, which is another you know, talk about that thing I talk about a lot. But it, uh, it's part of the control of the paper. The the going going to paper, going the classical orchestral route, and I always feel badly that, that I sound as though I'm criticizing all classical music, and I'm not, because I love classical music. I love it. Many of my violin heroes are the great classical players. I've studied them, and I love them. But there is something that happens when you play in an orchestra and you have a conductor situation. It's like you give up your rhythmic soul. You hand it over to a central controlling mechanism. And for a fiddle player... You can't do that. If you are going to go and play for a dance, one fiddle player for five hours with a hundred dancers, and you have to keep them on the dance floor, you have to be radiating hugely. Your you have your your chakras have to be in alignment, and you're vibrating, and and you're. Your groove is non-trivial. You're, you're you're an energy source, and that that way into the bow arm is uh, very powerful and very it, rather elusive today, because so few people have played for a dance. Um, when when you when your bow arm is is fed by the dance floor and is resonating with the dance floor, you find solutions that uh, and way, ways of being that you cannot get on paper. You know, you can't, and and that is a that is a huge um, deficiency, I think, in in a lot of the music making that goes on. E even when classical musicians are playing sarabands and gavottes and jigs and and we are now in a situation where a lot of musicians have never played for a dance and the bow arm is not fed by that knowledge and you can't really get a sense of it unless you put yourself at the end of the dance floor and take that responsibility man it's a it's a thrill and uh, i've actually achieved higher states of consciousness playing for a dance when the whole thing, the scene sublimates into sort of a oneness place because the symbiosis is, is so beautiful and huge and powerful and, and it's of you but it's not of you. Ever, you know, you can actually be watching yourself do it because you're out there observing. So that... that um, the fiddler's bow arm in Cape Breton was was very very fascinating to me, and and it put the the sharp end kind of back in the music, and which is the dance floor. Fractals fascinate me, and you being a physicist and have studied hmm. in different areas, um, I don't know. This is just an idea that popped into my head when you were saying all this, but the the dance hall itself. Is almost just like a larger fractal of the violin mm -hmm. itself. It's it's a wooden structure, absolutely, yeah, and it's resonating. Yeah, and these dancers are like the electrons or waves 
In fact, uh, Fiddler of Dooney, they dance like a wave of the yes, sea yeah. inside the building. That's a pretty, I like that idea. I often, actually, I I will say often that I, I don't play the fiddle. I, I play the room. That, that is my instrument. And it really is, it truthfully is. This is a, you know, the path to it. The fiddle is the path, but that's, I care a lot about the room. I mean, it's... That's a kind of cool idea. The, the fiddle is a, it has an unusual shape. It's like a key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, you put it yeah. and turn it in the room. And how many fiddlers, I talked to Daryl Anger, and he said every fiddler has a favorite uh, stairwell, <laughs> you know, a grotto, a, a room that has that resonant quality that's just playing it. And, uh, in a way, it's almost more seductive than, let's say, had somebody put a Guarneri or Strat into your hands to oh, yeah. play the right room. It can get you just high. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, Alistair performs the Scottish air Mrs. Jameson's Favorite, accompanied on piano by Paul Maclis from their CD, Legacy of the Scottish Fiddle. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Scottish fiddler Alistair Fraser. In part two, Alistair tells a story about a young girl suffering from a rare disease and what Scottish music meant to her. He also shares the anguish he experienced deciding whether to continue in his successful career as a nuclear engineer or to give himself over entirely to music. 
Then there's the tale of how an unscrupulous producer stole his music so it could be used as a theme for a major Hollywood film. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Thank you.